Hi, I'm David Freudberg. Each week at the Humankind on Public Radio podcast, we strive to practice the simple art of listening. At times, it can feel like a lost art in our noisy world, and of course, not everything is worth listening to. But for me, when I'm able to get centered, listening can be almost a sacred experience, a moment of focused attention that accords the speaker a measure of dignity. If you value this too, please help others to find our podcast. Consider going to Humankind on Public Radio at iTunes and leave us a kind review. And thanks for listening. This Humankind special project, The Power of Nonviolence, is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by a major grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. What you see without those you think are your enemies, those whom you hate, this is really you projecting from within yourself onto others. Stories of peacemakers who consider what it really means when we brand others as enemies. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Charles Gibbs has devoted much of his life to the intentional pursuit of conflict resolution. As an Episcopal priest, as a builder of bridges among people from divergent backgrounds, as a poet, he strives to play the role of a peacemaker. I don't think there's anything else I could have done. You feel deeply called to do it. I I believe it's why I'm here. Uh, I've done different things in my life from being a teacher, to being a rancher, to being a a priest in a parish, to working in a global interfaith organization, uh, writing, speaking, no matter what I've done, no matter how I've done it for me, the reason to do any of that. Uh, A few times the, the, the presenting reason was there was rent that needed to be paid and a refrigerator that was noticeably empty. Uh, but it's building a different kind of peace. There you go. Uh, the, the larger purpose always for me is to contribute what I'm able in any way I'm able to a more peaceful world, to a, a more just and equitable world. A celebration of the Holy Eucharist at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., where Charles Gibbs now preaches regularly. Was there conflict earlier in your life that caused you to see the importance of healing differences and hostility? You know, I had a remarkably good childhood. Uh, I didn't have a tortured childhood like lots of people who end up going into fields like peace building. My mother was someone 
still is one of the most deeply faithful people I know who was not just a Sunday Christian. She was someone who, uh, as, as one of the prayers goes, lived this not only with our lips but in our lives. She taught me at a very deep level that we're here for a reason, and this is what it looks like. Uh, and another piece, honestly, was growing up with a younger brother who had Down syndrome, who was as different as a human being could be in so many ways. Uh, he was labeled a mongoloid idiot. Uh, the doctor told my mother to put him in an institution and said he'll never be anything but heartache to your family. Fortunately, my mother had more wisdom than the quote-unquote scientist, which is why uh, I, I bristle every time I hear science trumpeted as somehow the bastion of truth, as though it's always inappropriate to question science. I think that does a disservice to the discourse and makes it easier for people to challenge science because science obviously has been wrong again and again and again, and it was wrong in my brother's case. He... Uh, died in his early 30s uh, at uh, the memorial service in the church my family was founding members of. The place was absolutely packed. Uh, and as they left, people said in their unique ways, knowing your brother changed my life. Mm. When I first met him, he was just so different. I didn't want to get anywhere near him, almost like he might be contagious, but he wouldn't let me hide. And finally, I had to come to terms with the human being who was there. And he was a remarkable human being. He taught me at the deepest level possible that there are no other human beings. We're all related. We're all sisters and brothers to each other. And our job here is to live into that, to be loving siblings to each other. And did that inspire, inform some of your work over the years to knit together the human family out of violence into harmony? Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I often say when people ask me why, I've ended up doing what I'm doing. That's my brother's a huge part of it. The other part, and it, it connects with what I was saying also, I, for reasons that I don't have a, a why answer to, I came into this world with the spiritual dimension of life the most compelling for me. Uh, even in the 13 years I left the church, it was still the most compelling part for me. I just couldn't find it in the church anymore. Uh, but from my earliest days, even though a lot of Christian theology runs counter to this, uh, I never believed anyone, anyone owned that. The spiritual dimension of life is a free gift for anyone who wants to accept it. One flame, a many candles, one sky, many stars, one sea, a many rivers, one love, and so a many hearts. 
The tradition of pacifist churches which renounce war-making has a long history in the United States. Philadelphia, where the country was founded in the 1700s, means the city of brotherly love. It was named by William Penn, a devout Quaker who repudiated violence. He established peaceful relations with Native Americans in Pennsylvania, the colony that bore his name. Other peace churches in America include the Mennonites and the Brethren. Reverend Kristen Stoneking, a United Methodist minister in Davis, California. I really come to nonviolence organically, I think, because I grew up, um, my father was a, a pastor in a Methodist Mennonite congregation in Kansas City, in the inner city. And um, my mother grew up as a Southern Baptist turned Methodist. And I didn't hear the word nonviolence until much ma later in life. But what I saw exhibited in my home was the, the, the three dimensions of, of Gandhian nonviolence, of, of personal transformation, spiritual transformation, of constructive program, and political action. And um, so both of my parents were, were r religious in the sense that we were part of a religious community. And I think the Mennonites in my early in my early life um, as a, a historic peace church with persons who really valued being a peacemaker and held up practices of peace as serious business um, really influenced me. And I saw my own parents embracing spirituality, but also working very hard at creating programs that lifted people up, that lifted up choices towards life. Um, one of my early experiences was of um, living in the inner city in Kansas City and our congregation was across the street from a school that the Kansas City School Board decided to close. And the decision was to sell the property to a company that was going to bury old oil drums on the site and knock down the school, knock down the, the playground, the only playground for miles. And um, my dad and our congregation took on the school board and through lots of political machinations and attempts to get this congregation to go away, basically won, won the site for the people of the neighborhood and built a playground there. And did so through organizing, did, th through, did so through different kinds of resistance and campaigns. That's classic nonviolence in action, but I never heard that term. And, um, and it was sourced from the community that, that um, held each other up spiritually. So what I saw demonstrated was that in order to take on violent systems or violence in the world, it's really important to have a community of accountability and support um, to remind you um, what you believe in, where you come from. Today, Kristen Stone King serves as executive director of the Fellowship of Reconciliation. It's an interfaith group founded in 1914 by an English Quaker and a German Lutheran, each seeking to link communities of faith across the boundaries of what would shortly erupt into World War I. The fellowship continued its peacemaking efforts, encouraging pacifist resistance to World War II, 
In that period, the fellowship was led by A.J. Musty, a Dutch-born Christian minister who had emigrated to the United States. He coined the expression, there is no way to peace, peace is the way. Kristen Stoneking. It means that we create peace in what we do, how we act, what we think, what we believe, that we are ultimately most able to change ourselves and to transform our own thinking and our own surroundings. And if we are an embodiment of the principle, the means must be consistent with the ends that we seek. If we ourselves are not able to embody peace, then, then peace as a destination is just never going to be a reality. Mohandas Gandhi had some advice for people on a quest to promote greater equality and justice in the world. The task must be undertaken from the inside out. Be the change you wish to see in the world, he famously urged. So those seeking peace on our planet must become peaceful in their own hearts, their own behavior. Otherwise, there's just a battle of egos, a disconnect that will block lasting change. Actually being the change requires the hard work of self-transformation as the basis for transforming society. Quaker author Eileen Flanagan in Philadelphia. Well, Quakers are very diverse theologically, but one of the most common phrases we use is that there's that of God in every person. Which was a quote from George Fox, the founder of Quakers. That's correct. And so if you really take that to heart, there's that of God in every person that if you can remember that in your interactions, it will certainly shape how you respond to someone, right? And if we're acting out of a place of compassion, it's gonna bring out the best in someone else rather than being agitated or unsettled in a way that brings out you know, the anxiety in them. Realizing our own part of interactions helps a lot, um, but still we can't control other people you know, patience and compassion, I think, help. I don't know anybody who does it perfectly all the time. I know I certainly don't. I don't know the Dalai Lama personally. Maybe maybe he really does. Just last week, a friend of mine told a story where he had a very frustrating day. It was pouring rain. A lot of things had gone wrong. And he came out of a meeting, and he was getting a parking ticket. And he asked the woman, could you stop? I'm right here. And she refused to stop, and he yelled at her. And then he stopped himself, and he said, I'm so sorry, you didn't deserve that. And she said, that's all right, I get it all the time. And he said, no, that's not okay. That's not okay for me to yell at you. That's, it's hurting my humanity, too. And they had this wonderful conversation. Um, She's a white, working-class woman in this job who has people yell at her all day long. He's a black guy who was from a working class family who is now very middle to upper middle class. And they had this wonderful conversation about their common struggles. Um, And it wasn't because he was perfect. It was because in the moment that he was imperfect, he was willing to be vulnerable. And humble. And humble. You're listening to The 
Power of Nonviolence, a special project from humankind. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more about the spirituality of peacemaking and to obtain audio copies or downloads of this series, please visit humanmedia.org. From a very early age, I was aware of the screwed-up nature of this society. Michael Lerner in Berkeley, California. My father was a judge. My mother was uh, the administrative aide to a United States senator from New Jersey. And in that, I was looking from a very insider perspective at the ways in which um, the, um, the, the dichotomy between what people were saying they believed in and what they were actually doing in positions of power. Um, recognizing that this very sweet guy who was the U.S. senator that was, you know, closest friends of our family was also um, acting inconsistent with what his beliefs were. So um, I was trying to figure that out at one level. Another level, I was dealing with the Holocaust. My parents, parents, my family had been uh, uh, deeply affected. Parts of my family wiped out by the Holocaust. So trying to understand how in the world this craziness could happen. How could people be so hateful? To try to understand this baffling dilemma, Michael Lerner explored deeply. He was ordained as a rabbi studying under the noted Jewish theologian Abraham Joshua Heschel, who taught Jewish mysticism and was active in the U.S. civil rights movement. Rabbi Lerner also earned a doctorate in philosophy and another doctorate in psychology. Today, he serves as editor of Tikkun, an interfaith magazine, and rabbi of Beit Tikkun Synagogue in Berkeley. There's a deep commitment in the spiritual and religious worlds to a uh, view of human beings as fundamentally sacred. Um, And uh, in Judaism, we say human beings are created in the image of God. And that consequently, in dealing with every human being, we have to imagine that we are in God's presence and uh, dealing with them in the most loving and caring way possible. So... um, That element in a spiritual tradition um, is there in almost every spiritual tradition that has survived. However, there is an ongoing conflict in every religion and every spiritual tradition between two fundamentally different worldviews. The first worldview, says Rabbi Lerner, pits people against each other. They act primarily out of self-interest in a zero-sum game in which I win only when you lose. They battle for finite resources in a lonely world. Security and self-preservation become the supreme concern. This worldview then leads people to uh, see the world as one that is full of danger and full of people who are likely to seek to dominate or control you unless you dominate and control them first. I call this the worldview of fear or the worldview of domination. Um, it's been around for thousands of years, 
And, says Rabbi Lerner, this approach accounts for much of the friction, the misunderstanding, the violence that plague our planet today. Human beings are reduced to fending for themselves. There's no larger vision, no higher power. The second worldview says something quite different. It says, no, actually, most of us didn't come into the world by ourselves. Most of us came into the world through a mother. And our mother was there to give us love and caring in the first few years of our life when we would not have survived without that love and caring. It uh, may not have been a biological mother. It might have been uh, somebody who, some other person, could have been a man, whatever. But, but um, that person gave us an experience of caring, and they didn't, um, they didn't provide that caring with a reasonable expectation of a good return on their investment of time and energy. But rather, um, they provided that because um, of a desire to give for its own sake, loving for love's sake, giving to give, not giving to get. Now, that experience um, is then reinforced by me in many friendships and caring relationships that people have in their lives. And that produces a different worldview, a worldview that says, my safety and security can be enhanced not through domination or control, but through love and kindness and generosity towards others. Human beings therefore face a choice between giving in to self-centered fear or being guided by what Abraham Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. And for many of us, it's a choice we confront on a daily basis. This struggle is going on not only in every tradition between different sides, but also inside every human being all the time. And so how do you reconcile in your personal Jewish journey uh, those conflicting voices, both of which you find in the sacred texts, and you're saying in yourself as we all do in ourselves? Yes, well, to the greatest extent possible, I do my spiritual work trying to enhance and support the most loving and caring parts of my being um, and to become aware of um, when I'm not coming from that place, what I've done, um, what has happened to me in my childhood and my growing up in this society that may have nurtured the fear rather than nurtured the love in, inside of me, but also what choices I've made that have either reinforced the more loving parts or the more fearful parts still created in the image of God, which means having the potential to, at every moment, freely choose what direction to go, I then try to freely choose to enhance the more loving and caring parts of my being. A spontaneous prayer sung by the late Sufi master Bawa Muhayyadeen long served the poor and taught in Sri Lanka, formerly called Ceylon, where he spoke Tamil, one of the oldest surviving languages on earth. Bawa then founded a spiritual fellowship in Philadelphia. He offered a gentle-spoken, pacifist vision of Islam, one that sharply contrasts the bellicose rhetoric of Islamic extremists. He's translated here into English. <laughs> Chase away hatred, replace it by compassion and unity, and strengthen them with a state of love. Eliminate anger and show patience instead, 
and embrace others with that love. In this way, in every circumstance, rather than attacking others with the hands or feet or knife or axe, face them with the qualities of patience and faith. To embrace them with those qualities in a state of love, that is Islam. Even a snake that is preparing to strike at us, if we merely gaze at it with love and patience, with compassion and the qualities of God, the snake will bow its hood, turn around and withdraw. Even the most ferocious animals, when they witness the patience of God's qualities in oneself, the compassion in oneself, such animals will turn and go away. The quality that makes a dangerous beast turn and withdraw without attacking is Islam. To control all poisonous qualities is Islam. God is love. Bawa Muhayyadeen laid out this peaceful path in his book Islam and World Peace, Explanations of a Sufi. It may surprise people accustomed only to the most menacing stereotypes of Islam. Bawa urged people of faith to look inward, to notice their own selfish tendencies, and to correct them. As we're doing this, we recognize that we have no enemies without. The enemies are within. University of Florida religion professor Gwendolyn Zohara Simmons. As we get rid of them, what we see on the outside is what we have on the inside. And I, that for me was uh, an incredible learning. Not that it's only Sufism that teaches this. Uh, there are other traditions that also teach this. Uh, but this was, I think, one of the takeaways, the biggest takeaway for me from my years of study. What you see without, those you think are your enemies, those whom you hate, this is really you projecting from within yourself onto others. Zohara Simmons is a longtime student of Sufi wisdom. I've been struggling with that for all these years, trying to really imbibe that understanding. And when I catch myself projecting, I, you know, when I'm blessed, I stop and I think, oh, my goodness, I'm doing that. I'm projecting onto this person my own hateful thoughts, my own separations, my own feelings of enmity. And it cuts it immediately. To, to have that realization that you are projecting. Yes. If one knows the true meaning of Islam, there will be no wars. All that will be heard are the sounds of prayer and the greetings of peace. Only the resonance of God will be heard, not the battle cries. That is the ocean of Islam. That is unity. That is our wealth and our true weapon, not the sword in your hand. In the earliest days, people waged their battles with sticks. Then they had spears. Afterward, they used steel swords, then guns. Later, they made bigger guns and cannons. 
following that, they invented weapons that flew. Then came bombs which could be dropped from above. They have even invented bombs that can fly. And now it has come to poisonous chemical weapons. But none of these things created by man is meant to foster the growth of mankind, or the growth of love, or the growth of peace and unity among mankind. Nor does it foster the growth of Islam. The late Sufi teacher Bawa Muhayyadeen, author of Islam and World Peace. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Editorial assistance from Ken Rogers, Kathy Graham, Mark Kilstein, and Bond Collard. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Dr. Lockwood Rush, to WUFT Radio in Gainesville, and to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Short Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, part two of The Power of Nonviolence, is Humankind Program number 232. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.